Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you so much for today and this opportunity to be together um, in church, in community with one another and in community with you. We ask that you'd make us aware of your presence in this place, that you would tune our heart to listen to you and your words and, and the way in which you are at work in our lives and in the life of this church. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that it would give you glory. Amen. All right, this is the sort of last installment of our Why Jesus series for now. Um, we'll for sure grab it again and ask all of you ju- to jump on in and share a little bit of your story. But because Kevin got a turn and many of you got a turn, this is my turn. Uh, before next week, we have PNs come and then we'll start a new series after that. And so here's my Why Jesus. All right, you ready? There you go. This is my family, and I think that my Jesus story starts with them. So my parents, this is my dad's, he was a lieutenant colonel, he's retired now, in the Marine Corps. And in case you wanted to know what it looked like when I was in trouble, that's the look. <laughs> that he didn't, have to, he didn't have to raise a hand, just had to give us that look. And it was, we, were, we were in line really quick. And that's my mom. So this is Mark and Lori Parrish. These are my mom's parents, the grandparents I knew most growing up. My, grand, my dad's father passed away before they were married. And my grandmother on that side, I had fond memories of, but she passed away when I was around five. So these grandparents here, I knew most, Hugh and Evelyn Smith. And my grandpa grew up Catholic and my grandma grew up Lutheran and she won that argument. So they kind of raised us all, my mom and two, in a Lutheran church growing up. And this is what that church looks like, Bethlehem Lutheran Church. It's still there in Santa Rosa. And I could see that peaked roof from my backyard. So for those of you who drove to church today, thank you for coming. But I grew up in a place where where, where our cul-de-sac was, Reynard Court in Rincon Valley in Santa Rosa, um, we had to walk two blocks to get to the Lutheran Church or only one block to get to the Catholic Church. And my best friend went to the Catholic Church, and so I was like, can't we just go there? And the walk is shorter. And my mom said, no, we're like, Grandma Evelyn won that argument a long time ago. We're going to go to Lutheran Church. But also, when I asked her why, she said, because of the grace. And so I had this framework in my life growing up that grace was so important you had to walk an extra block to make sure that you got it on a Sunday morning. So it's like, it must be really important that we have this emphasis on grace and forgiveness and love. So it was my immediate, like early framework for why we went to the church we went to. Um, my sister and I had a fantastic growing up experience. My dad was fun. He had to wear like a business suit to do sales, you know, during the day. But we'd wait on the step for as soon as he'd come home and could not just wait until he could peel off the business clothes and then get down and like, you know, horse and play in the playground in the back and all the fun things. And I lived in the kind of community where kids got to just run around like no phones, no tech, no, no pagers. The rule was come in when the street lights come on, right? And so it was just fun, and I was walking to school by myself as a little kid, and it was very idyllic. It was lovely. And there were redwood trees, and there were cows in the fields nearby, and Santa Rosa wasn't yet the wine country that it is now. Um, it was more agricultural and very down-to-earth and lots of fun. An incredible church experience there. 
And I still love going back to that community. My parents are still in Santa Rosa, and I still kind of consider it my hometown, even as I'm here for a very long time now in the Bay Area. My great-grandfather was immigrated here from Canada and also very hardworking fourth grade education and ended up becoming the mayor of Daly City uh, a long, long time ago and helped rebuild San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. And they were French, Canadian, Irish. Their last name was Gallagher and they changed their name to Smith when they came because Gallagher wasn't a real popular name. And on my grandmother's side, they came from Germany before World War I, and their last name was Hanschen, little chicken, and they also did not grow up speaking German because it was difficult to be immigrants way back then. Not true at all today, right? So that immigrant experience, though, was part of how we bootstrapped it up. My dad's parents came across in covered wagon from Oklahoma. Everyone worked hard, and the Protestant work ethic worked well for us as we thought about how God was present in our life. And while my parents didn't really do much in the home more than pray before dinner, we didn't have to pray before breakfast, that doesn't count, just dinner only, um, and we really mostly only went to church during the school year because you can get summers off, um, they were faithful. They were faithful to serve in their community. They saw themselves as people who had to give back to the community that they were in. They were indebted to the community. And while my dad never talked a lot about his faith, he grew up in a very strict um, Bible-believing, Bible study, but no holidays, no, no uh, birthdays, no Christmas, anything kind of home, very strict. I saw him every, every month, maybe every week, always tithe always give something. So his faith was just lived in his faithfulness. We saw it outwardly all the time. And if you asked me who I was and what I believed in, I'm a Christian and I know Jesus. And I learned there that God loved me no matter what and that God loved everybody no matter what and that we were all invited and included into the party. And then I went to Redwood Camp at Mount Hermon. I think this was my aunt's doing wonderful, amazing woman, and she got us all sort of invited or registered on, and my age group was that I'm the oldest grandchild in the family, so I had to go by myself. I was a little bit nervous, and there I encountered non-denominational Christianity, like real Bible, Mount Hermon. Anybody been to Mount Hermon Bible camp? Yeah, okay, <clears throat> so it was wonderful. My counselor's name was Cheerios. I could not, I mean, she had a real name too, but that was like the, everybody had a name. I was already like, when I grew up, I'm gonna be counselor, my name's gonna be Cricket. Like I had a whole thing planned just by meeting her that one time. And they would, they were fun and meaningful people. They like really cared about what they were telling us. And there they taught us that Jesus could make his home in our heart. And I remember a lot of people saying like, well, what are you? And I'm like, I, I'm a Christian. And they're like, well, when did you ask Jesus into your heart? And I'm like, Ev always, like always. I never, I wasn't raised with any of that language in my Lutheran church. You were just in. Like, did you wanna come? Great, come, Neil, like be in. Now we did confirmation when we were in junior high and confirmation was serious and it was three years meeting with the pastor every Wednesday and every Sunday morning having Sunday school and 20 service hours a month and trying to understand Luther's catechism and all those kinds of things. But Mount Hermon Redwood Camp talked about our heart being Christ's home and that Jesus could come and make himself at home in our lives. 
And in that time period, then I kind of realized that this was something that was more than just a culture that I was being brought up in, but something that was real to me. It made sense to me to sort of lean in and let Jesus be in charge. And at that camp, they gave us quiet time. I'd never heard of quiet time before. Everybody else has always heard of quiet time, but the Lutherans and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, we did not yet know about quiet time, and, or had not been told to me. And so we were sent out by ourselves like in the woods, and I went and found the tennis court at Mount Hermon, and, and I sat right at the corner of those white lines, and as I sat there, I had an experience with Jesus. I think a lot of the other kids were having their experiences by being called up or going up front or, or having some invitation or a big prayer session, but mine was by myself, sitting there, and I remember cross-legged, lining up a knee on each white line, and just sitting there and starting to read my Bible and then thinking, oh, God is real, and I'm not in charge of me. And I had this picture, like, you know, you can kind of see yourself from above. Sometimes I, I could see myself from above. Just this little kid sitting there, probably around 10 years old, and realizing something is bigger than me. And that I'm not in charge, and that I wanted Jesus to be in charge. And that was basically the prayer, like, oh, okay, I'm not in charge, Jesus, would you be in charge of my life? And from that point forward, everything changed massively. I came home very on fire. I was like, my, I treated my parents as though they'd never seen a Bible or raised me in church, right? I was talking to them all the time. My mom said, okay, fine. Like, she was a little bit worried. I was part of a cult. She was like, fine, you can read your Bible. We'd already been given Bibles at church. Like, the Lutherans did have Bibles. I had one. Um, and so I was reading, and she was like, just don't read Revelation. I was like, check. Gonna read that tonight at 9 o'clock. So <clears throat> read that under a blanket with a flashlight because somebody told me not to. And so then I read that, and out of context, was very afraid of, like, so that was, I think, probably the first time I ever had, like, a picture in my head of maybe, like, a wrathful or scary God was like, ooh, bowls of anger. And then that week, you know, on the playground at school, there were friends that would take the name of the Lord in vain, and my parents wouldn't let us even say, oh my gosh. Um, and so they were running around doing that, and I was like, watch out, like bowls of lightning. I've read about this. They will come and get you. And, and I think I was teasing them, but I think I was a little bit worried about it too. Now, in the midst of all of that, then when I got to junior high, I met a friend who shared my passion for faith. Her name is Leah Mandel, she's in the upper left corner, and she and I grew up together in junior high. I wanted to be a pastor at this point, and she wanted to be a rabbi. And so we would stay up late at night talking about our faith and talking about what mattered to us. And it was in the height of the Cold War and we talked about how silly it was that we hated people that we didn't know and someday we should go to the Soviet Union and make friends. So we ended up doing that in junior year of high school. We just signed up for an exchange program and she and I went to the then Soviet Union and we decided to make friends. And, and she introduced me to bagels and blintzes and schmear and I would go home and introduce her to what? What do we have, at potluck in the Lutheran church? Um, and my confirmation was not as amazing as her bat mitzvah. And I remember sitting and watching her at her bat mitzvah, reading from the Torah in Hebrew and having such holy envy for that. And I came home and I said, Mom, you know, if, if Jesus is Jewish and we follow Jesus and Jesus was a Jew, then, then why is it that we don't do all the things Jesus did? How come we don't also then 
read and speak in Hebrew and all these things. And my mom said, we owe a debt. We have lost something because of our prejudice and our misunderstanding. And we need to make that right. So I grew up with that framework. I owe a debt. I need to make it right. And I need to know more about where I come from. So Leah and I would have those conversations, and she and I have reconnected again and again recently, and um, she's doing wonderful, amazing, redemptive work with the migrant community in Arizona, and she's still doing good, and we connected again, and she's, she has holy envy now for this church and this synagogue, and hopefully someday she'll be able to come and visit. But those things changed me growing up, and they were very positive and very good. When I went to college in Southern California, I couldn't find anybody that understood my faith, that understood that it meant something to me, that I wanted to give my life to Jesus, that I wanted to be a pastor. But then I found this wonderful college group at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Ronald Reagan went there, so I knew it was a good church. I'm just joking, but my, my parents, well, my family was raised conservative, um, when that used to mean something different than it means today. Um, and at that event, at that event down at Bel Air Church, uh, we had a wonderful college group, and I would drive an hour from Scripps College out to where all the UCLA students were at this fantastic college ministry and hang out, and I made friends there pretty quickly and had like a wonderful girls small group, college-age small group. We rollerbladed because that's what you did when you lived in Santa Monica, and, um, and then I came on staff I ended up coming on staff there. And in between those events of just joining small groups and hanging out and just deciding to fully, much to my parents' chagrin, leave my pre-law pursuit and go instead to work full-time for the church, um, I went to the Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. And at that concert, I was invited by a guy, because that's what happens when you go to college group and you're new, right? So it's like sharks and minnows. And you just, you show up and there's new, and then there's like all the, hey, so, and you know how in college groups, guys impress girls by stacking a lot of chairs, um, by being in the worship band, you know, and inviting you to Christian concerts. So I was invited to a Christian concert. Now, I was so far out and had been my whole life of Christian subculture that I had no idea who Stephen Curtis Chapman was or Brian, what's the, Brian... I want to say so, but that's like the swing person. The Duncan, is that it? I, okay, so I just was like, well, I have enough money for one album. So I went to the Christian bookstore and I got one so I'd know a few songs beforehand. And I, I only bought the album of the opening act because I didn't even know who was like the headliner. And we're there and, you know, the new college friends are all hanging out. And then Stephen Curtis Chapman starts to play this song called Hearts Cry. And this is not like the big song of the album. This is like, you know, track number six. This is my heart's cry. I want to know the one who saved me and gave me life. This is my heart's cry. Be so close to him that all my life becomes a testimony of my Savior's grace and love. I heard those notes and those words, and I was like, I am not alone. 
This is how I felt my whole life. I wanted to do all that I could. I like, I'm like, cry like the amount. Like, I was like sitting there, again, college students and the whole crowd. I was like, that guy gave words to what I want. I want to know Jesus more than anything. And I want to give my life to his world. And that was it. And so then I was like, okay, I'm signing up for college group. I'm signing up for junior high ministry. I got on staff right away. I joined all the things, did all the things. My parents freaked out appropriately, totally, completely understandably. They called a friend of theirs who was Christian and also was like maybe going to talk some sense into me when he was in L.A. And so he met me and he's like, tell me what's going on. And I was like, I love Jesus. I want to do. And he was like, I just wish my kids felt the way that you did. And this is so wonderful. And I'm going to go tell my, your parents, like, maybe you could meet my son. Like it was all that. So it backfired entirely. And they instead, I was like completely affirmed in my call. So from there then, I decided that summer after having like a wonderful time sort of growing in my faith, finally finding some sort of voice and landing for what I'd felt I'd wanted to do since I was 13 when I told my parents I wanted to be a pastor. And they said, dear God, no. You'll be poor for the rest of your life. Pick something else. Um, Now I was like, see, I, I knew I was supposed to do that. And I'd been on that track. And listen, I'm, gonna give, I'm giving you like highlights and overviews. There's so many pages I'm ripping out because I don't want to tell them to you today. So in though this moment, I decided I'll go home for the summer. All my friends were doing wonderful big things for Jesus. Like they were going to go and fly across the world and tell all the people and all the things. And I was like, I have no plans. I will go home to Millbrae, live with my grandparents, whom I love very much. And I will try to send letters to every Lutheran and Presbyterian church I can. This is before websites, okay? Websites did not exist. You had to open, it's a phone book. It was a big book and you could look up churches in it. And then I would write. So I wrote to all the Lutheran and Presbyterian churches I could in like San Bruno, Millbrae, and Burlingame and said, I'm awesome. I love Jesus and I would like to come and work for you this summer. No one wanted me. Except after I sent those things, I got one phone call back, actually within, from Southern California, I got one phone call back within like 24 hours. Quick, mail was fast, from the small Lutheran church in Millbrae. And this tiny Lutheran church, Calvary Lutheran Church, this guy called me and he said, hi, I'm the pastor, I'm going on sabbatical for the summer. We'd love to have you come. You can run a youth program for our junior high kids. He didn't know me from Adam. We can't pay you any money. Um, but you're welcome to come and, and do something. And I was like, okay. And I, it's like, Jesus, the first church that calls me, that's where I go. So now I amended my prayer. Jesus, the first church that can pay me, that's where I'll go. <laughs> nobody else called me. Nobody else offered to even have me come and visit. So sorry, we don't have a, a place for you, but you can come and hang out. And here's our services. Nobody. It's like, okay. So I show up at this little church and I still am trying to figure out how I'm going to make some money for the summer. And I decide, well, I'll run a youth ministry. So I just emailed, I'm, no, I didn't have email. I made a word art flyer. This was what's a sample of one later. This was like 1993. I made a word art flyer. I started inviting all the junior high kids that I could in the neighborhood to come. Our first event in this beautiful little church, no parking lot, just on the corner of a neighborhood, we had about 30 kids show up. Me and 30 kids. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 19. 
I had planned an event for 30 kids where I was the only adult, and it was an eight-hour event. (laughs) Yeah, see, I, I did not know what I was doing. We came, we went to a park nearby, we played some game with shaving cream, it was a mess. They wrestled me to the ground very easily. Um, My digital watch got set forward an hour somehow in the wrestling. And so by the time I got them back to their church, I was like, oh, thank God, the parents will be here any minute. No, we still have another hour. And so we're in like the youth lounge and I'm asking the kids to come and sit and we'll like do some sort of Bible study or lesson. And they're like, no. So they're jumping off the choir loft into the sanctuary. I can hear them asking them repeatedly, please stop, please stop. And they're like, ha, 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 because they know I'm outnumbered and I have no authority. So I'm sitting in the youth room there. And as I'm sitting there, I started to pray, Jesus, I'm not going to do this anymore. You're going to have to show up and do something right now, some sort of miracle. You're going to send your Holy Spirit here right now or else I'm not coming back next week. And after I prayed that prayer, I opened my eyes, and I'm not lying to you, a white dove came and sat in the open window of the youth lounge in Millbury by the San Francisco airport. And I sat in that youth lounge, and I was like, uh, oh, okay. Like, sort of, out of your busy schedule, if you can send a little white dove to personify the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I can still hear, by the way, as that dove's sitting there looking at me, thump. Thump. Like the kids are still launching themselves off. It's not like all of a sudden everything was better. Still thumping, wild giggling. I had asked one girl, she'd spilled Doritos on the carpet. I was like, could you please pick that up? And she was like this. And ground him into the carpet, just dead on, looked at me. And I was like, I'm talking to your mother when she comes. And that girl, when her mother picked her up, she ran over and she went, mom, mom, meet my new best friend, Danielle. And just gaslit me. The whole, I was like sitting there like shocked, did nothing but I went back the next weekend. And that summer ended up being like highlight, really one of the best summers of my life. I had these crazy kids. They, would, they were all from the neighborhood. The church didn't have many kids at all. These kids were feral, like they had nothing else to do <laughs> except to run into the youth part, right? Kevin's like, they were crazy. And we didn't know each other yet, but he was, I was gonna rope him in to help me very soon. And um, I played guitar, I had like three chords that I could do fast or slow. And I tried so hard to get these kids to fall in love with Jesus. And by the end of the summer, and I could tell you the miracle after miracle, like I would be sitting there going, okay, I invited all these kids to go to the circus. I have no money to take these kids to the circus. They're all like, a lot of them very low income kids. And then I would show up, I would still go, okay, yeah, never, never turn anybody away. I would show up to the door of the church getting ready and this woman came running over to me. She said, are you Danielle? I said, yeah, I'm Danielle, she lives next door. She said, somebody left this on the front step for you and I just had my name on it and opened up exact cash I would need to get all the kids into the circus. Where I was thinking I was gonna sit outside like through the tent shouting, stop it, please stop, don't do that anymore. Like the, and, and all of a sudden it would work out or I wouldn't have enough drivers and somebody would call me at the last minute and say that they could come. I had a Volvo and smash all these kids into the car. It was ridiculous, it was off. Everything was crazy and fun and wild and alive. And I was hooked. I couldn't couldn't go back and do pre-law after this. This was it, this was the miracle. And it was wonderful. And after that summer, 
They called me back and the next year they actually paid me. And then the next year they paid me after that and then the next year they called me into full-time ministry. And I ended up being at that church for, I don't know, seven, eight years. And it was wonderful and alive and I'm still friends with those kids and they still call us and they're all parents themselves and it was amazing. Now in the midst of that time I thought, I should probably figure out what I'm doing because I don't know what I'm teaching at all. And so I started going to San Jose Christian College where I met that dude, Kevin Nooner. And look, we're ridiculously young. I have no business being in charge of anything or dating. But we decided to not just date, but to get engaged after 30 days of dating. And my best friend, Christine, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she'd been battling cancer for a long time. She had only one leg left at this point, one lung, and an inoperable tumor on her spine. And she came to visit, well, Kev, Kevin and I had not even really gone on one date yet. We were just kind of hanging out. But I'd seen enough people with Christine freak out when she, they were near her with cancer. They just couldn't manage it. And so I was kind of like, let's see what this guy does. And he appropriately ignored me and took care of her the whole visit. He would run to her side of the car, make sure her crutches were out, make sure she could do it. This was before Whole Foods were everywhere. There was like one Whole Foods deep down in San Jose. We'd run there to make sure she had the food that she needed to be able to continue to manage her pain and, and her diet and her life. And he was amazing. Now she'd seen me go through some heck and back in my life. And she turned to me and she said, he's the one. I was like, okay. So then we went on our first date, right, long after that. And then January 2nd, right after we were deliriously exhausted from a lock-in overnight for, you know, when they remember the lock-ins, people who are ridiculous leave you with their children for an entire evening, and then you, you run that all in the church, and again, the choir loft situation, all of that happening. And so then after that, we were up in Napa visiting his mom, and he was like, so will you, you know, marry me? And I was like, sure, and then that meant we could kiss, so we were really excited once we were engaged. So um, <laughs> then... She really wanted to be at the wedding. So one weekend when she felt good, I was like, how are you doing? And we would go and visit her down in LA every couple weekends. And we just put our clothes in the back of the car and we'd go, how are you feeling this weekend? She go, I feel terrible. And we go, okay, cool. And we wouldn't say anything. One weekend we drove down there and said, how are you feeling? She's like, I feel great. I'm like, want to go to Vegas? She was like, yes. So we drove in the dead of night in her Nissan Pathfinder with her and her husband, Adam. And we got to a little white wedding chapel, the place where Joan Collins and Michael Jordan have been married. Again, this before the internet, so we didn't really know what we were doing. We are just like driving down the street, like you can just get out. And they're like, you need a license. We're like, oh. And they said, it's okay, courthouse open until 2 a.m. Great. So we went to the courthouse, got in the little queue line, got the papers, went in. Reverend Belinda Rhodes married us. Um, she was very serious about her job, and we were laughing hysterically the whole time. And so the room's very small. It's got that ridiculous, like, uh, waterfall photography poster behind it. And she turns to us. We're all four staying there. She goes, uh, do you want to walk down the aisle? I was like, I think I'm okay. Right? We're, all, we're all four here. We got you, the four of us. We're gonna, she's like, walk down the aisle. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So I turn and walk, like, six steps. And then she has a tiny little boombox with a little cassette. And it goes, click, click. Dun, 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 dun. 
da, 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 click, like I'm back, right? So now I'm laughing, Kevin's laughing, Christine's crying, her husband Adam is crying, Reverend Belinda's mad and getting madder by the minute because we're clearly not taking it seriously because we're laughing so hard. And she started with just like marriage is a blessed occasion to bring it, like just totally like start dialing and we're just laughing harder. And that's because we're pastors, the whole thing's funny, she gets madder and madder and madder. And we are married. That's it. I said, my only regret in life, my big regret, is I didn't spend 50 bucks for the VHS tape. I would play it all for you right now. I know, sad for everybody. Afterwards, my friend Christine looked at me and she said, just tearing, crying, just beautiful, just loved the whole thing. And her, friend, her husband turned and said, dude, I like totally saw the Holy Spirit fall down on you guys. We're like, cool, and he goes, it was so bitchin'. That's what he said. That was our toast. We went to the all-you-can-eat buffet afterwards. Kevin did buy a t-shirt, Little White Wedding Chapel. He and Adam matching ones. And Christine passed away not a few months after that. We had a wonderful ceremony with our friends and family at that little tiny church. That was almost 25 years ago. That dude changed my life. Kevin would lean into my ear at different moments, in different settings, professional, family, etc. And when things were being told to me that maybe were not kind, he would lean in and go, that's not true, right? You know that's not true. And he's been that way from the beginning. A redemptive, beautiful place where he entered into the points of suffering and didn't run away from them. And within that first year of marriage, we had about six people die of cancer. So I was never part of a prosperity gospel movement that said, if you make Jesus your choice, you're protected from suffering. My experience with Jesus was that when you make Jesus your choice, he is with you when they're suffering. And that was the only thing that ever made sense to us in that world was that Jesus was present. Jesus was present when my dear friend's husband passed away and I was watching their children as he succumbed to his fight with cancer that year. Jesus was present as another mom passed away from cancer that year. Jesus was present in all of those moments. And Kevin and I showed up for people. And it wasn't because we were great or amazing. It was because Jesus was showing up for us and we were showing up for one another. And in those moments, even when we had the courage to get out of the drive-through of the tunnel of love and actually go in in Vegas and get the real vows done, right? Jesus showed up in all of the silly and all of the hurting and all of the fun. And he showed up in all of it. Now, not long after that, I got a job in 2000 at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. Things sort of imploded at that last church I was at. The pastor had to step down and all of the fun things that happened in churches. And so we got a, I got a job at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. It was around this time that Kevin got a job at, for, at Menlo Park Press. And so we're both doing these things. And I was in the East Palo Alto or East Menlo Park, O'Brien location right there. And I got to meet some of the best friends of my life, many of whom are still in the room or serve in le as leadership at this church, this church here, Spark Church. We started just doing all of this work together. 
And it was fun and crazy. And on a missions trip to South Africa, I ended up meeting my daughter, Tabby. And we ran Narnia events for the kids and we had a lion and, and I got to officiate wedding. You can see Sarah Grace and Jason Van up there. Uh, I was there before the kids were there. We had such an incredible time. And at that church, I learned a lot about justice and hope and forgiveness and connection, what church could be, that it could be truly alive. Concurrent to that, I started going back to school, went and got my Master's of Divinity at Fuller Theological Seminary, started studying in Jerusalem. We started going to Israel in 2003 and then going repeatedly back and forth again to Israel and to Turkey and then to Greece to study and lived in Israel in 2008 as part of my master's degree program studying at Jerusalem University. And that started showing me in a way that I never learned in either the Lutheran church or the non-denominational setting or even the Presbyterian setting that there was a context, a historical context for Jesus that mattered and that when you understood it, it changed how you lived. It changed how you followed Christ. That it mattered that the Sea of Galilee looked this way, was shaped this way, how, who lived there, how they lived in that time. And all of the things that I had learned years ago in junior high with my friend Leah Mandel, all of the ways I had had holy envy for her understanding of her faith um, and that connection to Torah, it all started coming full circle for me. And those ways of trying to figure out how Jesus taught what he taught, it started changing what I taught. A lot of the ways that I had learned from youth ministry and how I kind of like flown by the seat of my pants, doing my best to answer questions about, you know, Bible that I had not studied, honestly. As a youth pastor, I think I, I, think I preached terrible sermons. I'm sure I preached like the traditional version of hot and cold from Revelation and I can tell you the actual context for it. Like, I'm certain that I did not understand the book of Job. I remember one youth group kid coming to me afterwards and saying, hey, so Job, like that's like a rough story. I was like, yeah, and they were like, so like, how did God make it all right in the end? I'm like, oh, God restored everything. So he's like, so those original children that belonged to Job, those all came back. And I was like, yeah, no, uh-oh. Like I was like, realize I'm super too deep for the kids' questions right away. But this type of teaching and this type of study, setting the text back into its original context, setting the gospels back into first century Israel, made it so that I could not know, but I could try to find out. And it was okay to not know. In fact, highly encouraged to say, I don't know. And that shifted and changed everything. And that, as we started leading trips to Israel and as we started teaching others how to ask questions, how to wrestle, how to study the Bible in its original cultural context, that, that the way of Jesus mattered, that what Jesus said and taught mattered, that the discipleship system mattered and that could change how we live today, there were a whole bunch of people who started coming around saying, I think we want to be part of a different church community that's asking these questions all the time. And that's how Spark Church showed up. Because a whole bunch of people started coming and saying, could we, could we all the time say, I don't know? <laughs> could, could we still say that we're followers of Jesus when we're not sure what we believe all the time? Do we have to be voted off the island if we don't toe the line constantly? Do we have to have all the right answers or all the right words? Do we have to believe all of these things, all the party line about all the stuff, or could we 
ask questions? Could we wrestle? Could we engage? Could we really radically try to love our neighbor? And so Kevin and I and that group of friends, we start saying, well, what are the things that we are constantly seeing in the life of Jesus as we study Jesus in that cultural context? that historical kind. Well, we see Jesus always loving. We see Jesus trying to really bring people together in reconciliation. We see Jesus trying to elevate the reputation of God in community. We see, we see that there's life and hope and love to be found in multi-faith relationships. We see that there's life and hope and Jesus to be found in racial reconciliation. We think these things matter. We think that we're supposed to believe and follow a God who's rescued us and then be agents of rescue in the world. We think we're supposed to be agents of resurrection. So we found ways as this beautiful church community and a lot of those people from all of those other parts of life joined in to start to try to create something lovely here at Eitz Chaim, here with friends like Samina Suntas of American Muslim Voices for Peace and Justice, and she's just walked in here and will be here this evening for their iftar dinner. All of these beautiful friends that came around and said, we'll stand together and we'll try to figure out ways to love one another in this world. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're gonna try to actually imitate Christ. And so one of the things that shaped us, that shaped me very early on, from the time I was a little kid till now, and this push and pull through this whole thing, is that Jesus stands with the oppressed. That Jesus is always standing with those who are on the edge of the outside, who are the ones that need a hand, a love, a connection. And when I was little, my mom raised us with this fierce value for justice for what's right and wrong. And I was raised in a community that brought in speakers, a public school system that brought in beautiful, wonderful, amazing people to say, here's, here's what happened in the Holocaust and here's how you need to make sure it never happens again. Here's what happened in the civil rights movement and here's how you can continue to be part of that good work. I was part of a Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream speech contest for the Optimist Club for the state of California. And so in junior high, I was going around the state going, this is why. We're supposed to care about these things. And I was talking about Susan B. Anthony, and I was talking about Martin Luther King Jr., and I was talking about Abraham Lincoln and others. Not because I was great, but because that's the soup I got to swim in. I was around people that were having those conversations and trying to raise up another community of people. So when I was in high school and I found out through my teachers that there was an unfair pay situation and that they weren't getting paid what they needed and they were gonna have to go into strike, they said, you know what, if the students just went on strike one day, the district would lose so much money because they wouldn't get paid for all the absences that they would immediately have to get us their pay raise. And I was like, I'll do that, no problem. So I organized a strike a student walkout, I, wrote, I wore a Save the Planet t-shirt and my Birkenstocks, which uh, Phoebe has referred to as my God shoes. And so, because they look like Jesus, right, when we were little. And so went out there and, you know, my mom worked in the administration of that high school and I staged a walkout of all the students. And we stood on that corner right on Mendocino Avenue and I was already dismayed that it seemed like a lot of kids were just very excited to cut class. And I was like, don't you know why we're here? These teachers need money. We need to make sure that they have money. There's an unfair, unjust situation here. But by the way, they got paid that day. By the end of the day, we were all back in class. It worked. 
And so those types of protests, those seemed to go a little bit quiet in me until Spark. Because I didn't feel permission. I, I don't know if you've had this experience. Early in 2000s, at one of the churches I was working, I was like, you know what? There's a massive HIV AIDS crisis and we need to do and say something about that. And I was told by leadership that they'd be happy to help, but could we just not say the word AIDS? I was like, hmm, I think we can say it. No. Well, we can do this, but we can only do it if we make sure that people know about Jesus first. So we can feed the people, but we're gonna have to tell them about Jesus and then feed them. And I was like, why? Why don't you just tell them, just give them food? Right? I'm pretty sure Matthew 25, like just hungry, thirsty, in prison, sick, stranger, all those things. Jesus' teachings are clear. But the great thing about coming and starting your own church with a lovely group of also radically crazy-minded, Jesus-loving people is that you can just say things like, oh my goodness, refugees from Syria are in distress. Let's go stand on the corner and see what we can do about that. And then we find other people who are also there going, I'm also really worried about this. Or we can say, I don't think kids should be in cages. And I don't think families should be separated. And I'm pretty sure DACA matters. And I'm pretty sure that, that my Muslim brothers and sisters should feel safe here in this country. And I'm pretty sure that my Jewish brothers and sisters should feel safe here in this country. And I'm pretty sure that our kids should feel safe when they go to school. And I'm pretty sure that my friends of color should feel not marginalized, but centered. And that justice should matter because Jesus said so, because Jesus loves all, because it matters whether or not people are hurting. And the teachings of Jesus have changed my life. I don't do any of these things, nor does Spark do any of these things, because we're trying to be progressive or cool or hip or cutting edge. We say everybody's welcome at the table because everybody's welcome at the table. Because it's not my table. Because it's Jesus' table, and it's his body and his blood, and he doesn't keep anybody away. So when we've had moments where people have come and said, oh no, I can't believe that you, insert story here, welcomed these people, attended this event, did this thing. Right? I'm so sorry that's hard, and I understand why it's hard. I'm doing it because Rabbi Jesus taught me to and that matters and because Jesus stands with the oppressed and the marginalized we do too and that's my why Jesus I love Christ because of how he loves because of how he teaches because of how he suffers with us because of the miracles that have happened in my life not the miracles that it's not that the miracles always happen the way I want them to do, right? I mean, I've had plenty of bedsides that I've had to stand by and say goodbye. But because when those events happen, Jesus stands with me in those moments. And all of that is the why Jesus. Because when I was 13 and I felt called into the ministry, the verse that made most sense to me was, his word is like a fire within me. I'm weary of keeping it in. Indeed, I cannot. Because it gave me such great joy to live the way of Jesus in this world. Because every time I saw other people living this way of Jesus, loving people, bringing them in, welcoming all, making sure that everybody had a seat at the table, regardless of 
of identity or racial makeup or ethnicity or citizenship or religion or non-religion or any of those things. When, when I see Christ welcoming all, I wanna be part of that. I wanna be at that table. I wanna be at that party. I wanna be there because whenever that starts to happen, a little bit more of heaven comes crashing in here on earth. And that is something I don't wanna miss. And I feel incredibly blessed, privileged, to have been able to sit and hear stories and be invited in, in my ignorance and in my privilege and in my misunderstanding and be taught and be able to sit at the feet of all of you, listening to your stories and seeing how God is at work, how the divine is at work in your life, and seeing how healing the presence of Jesus can be. Now there's much more to this story, but my why Jesus is to have a little bit of heaven breaking in here on earth. And I'm grateful for that taste every day. That's my why Jesus because I want to be at the table with all of you. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All who are hungry, come and eat. All who are thirsty, come and drink. The table's been prepared for you and for me. This table of 2,000 years and stretching into the future, this table, all are welcome at his table. This is my heart's cry.